Hi, I'm Rick Tittle, and this is the Rick Tittle Podcast on the 8th Side Network. Join me as I get busy with the biggest names in sports and entertainment. All right, we're listening to uh, a song off the CD Classics Unleashed by musician Victor Alexeyev. Am I saying that right, Victor Alexeyev? You got that close. It's Alexeyev. Alexeyev. Okay, well, you are a guy who um, is putting out this new CD, Classics Unleashed, and you're looking at Beethoven, Vivaldi, Bach, and others, and you're putting uh, an electric spin on it. How did this all get off the ground? Well, uh, something that I thought about for a long time, uh, I remember uh, when Wendy Carlos did Switch on Bach, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, I was kind of studying electronic music back then, and I thought, that, that's kind of an interesting take. Uh, well, it's just another instrument. And, uh, of course, then you've got you know people like Ravel that uh, would reorchestrate something, and then Emerson, Lake, and Palmer did pictures for the exhibition. I thought it was so cool. And uh, so I thought, you know, I, with all the gear that I have, uh, let's put something together as if th- these guys were alive today and they had access to this kind of gear. It sounded like a nice project to do. So it was a lot of fun. Was this something that came to you early or, uh, and it just sort of flowed out, or was this like, you know, years in the making? No. Uh, <laughs> no, it just came out uh, probably during the whole COVID thing. It had uh, you know, more time to think about things and projects that, you know, that I, I have lots of projects on the go. And so I thought uh, this would be fun. I just started off with just one. I just started off with the Moonlight uh, Sonata and, and the Bach. I thought that would sound really cool. And uh, so I played it to, for a few friends, and they loved it. And they thought that uh, certainly a new twist to that. And uh, for sometimes classical music comes across stodgy, you know, maybe, uh, you know, elitist or whatever uh, and this sort of like brought it down to sort of a kind of different cultural level that we're used to today with uh, you know with all the electronics and things like that I just thought it'd be really fun um, we have instruments now uh, with this society we could do anything uh, Beethoven uh, you know when he would expand on new instruments or Mozart brings in the flute or something like that they get excited because they got new sounds to play with and it's just like a soundscaping thing. And it was just like, what would they do today if they could, instead of using a timpani, they use, I don't know, thunder sound, <laughs> things like that. So, <laughs> so that's where it all went. And just one thing led to the next. Well, it was a couple of years in the making. Very cool. What is your absolute, do you have an absolute favorite or your favorite two tracks on the CD? Nah, not really. <laughs> uh no, I kind of, you know, uh, you know, I like them all. It's just, you know, just one thing after another. I don't really have a favorite of anything. Um, actually, when I'm finished with the project, I can't wait to get to the next one. So I'm more thinking about the next project than the ones I just did. 
Who were some of your influences growing up and getting into this sort of uh, the, you know, the more electrical side of things? Well, uh, you know, it started off with the conservatory of music of, uh, up in Canada in Toronto. Uh, but uh, as I was just hitting the teenage years, uh, Christmas coming around, and you know, parents go out to the record stores, find out what's current, and, and I got all these great albums like Jimi Hendrix and and uh, and the Beatles and uh, all of this, and I thought this is awesome. And uh, so I got pretty well hooked into all of that pretty well early, and I thought this is this is uh, this is what I'd like to do. But I was at the conservatory, and that was a little different. So. I started to play with both worlds, so I started to join Bach bands and do the classical at the same time. It just seemed the natural thing to merge the two together later on. A couple more questions for Victor Alexa. Mm-hmm. Classics yeah. Unleashed. Um, when you started playing the piano, was it almost mm-hmm. like just after you started walking? I mean, you kind of have to start then, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's kind of weird because uh, I, I I don't remember anything else but doing that. So it goes back pretty far. Uh, you know, I think I started around the age of four and five. Got into the conservatory, got a scholarship at seven, and uh, I don't know. It just seemed the most natural thing to do. Um, so yeah, it's just been there forever and ever and ever. I think that uh, everybody seemed to maybe have a path or journey in their lives. And uh, this one seemed to have been chosen. And uh, so I, I, I really like what I do. I like creating. How did you get into film scoring? Because I know you've worked uh, with a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably when I saw Planet of the Apes. Uh, when I heard uh, uh, Goldsmith's uh, score to that, I was blown away. The, the power of, uh, of scoring, what it can do. And I was just so intrigued with that, a whole idea of connecting um, the emotions or the action or whatever uh, that's visual to music. And how do you convey that? How do you do that kind of translation? It's just fascinating. And uh, so I realized <laughs> uh, that this would, be a, this would be a real art form to get into. Um, you can make or break a film with music. I mean, you think about Jaws and Star Wars and all the great films, uh, they all have great music. Is it, um, so is it, was, yeah, is it hard, like, be, being considered a prodigy, like, you know, you you have to be, you know, uh, playing with the Berlin Philharmonic or you're a big disappointment? <laughs> Did you have expectations like that? Yeah, all the time. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, a gifted, uh, I was on gifted programs and things like that, but you know, I got into sports, so I broke my arms, uh, you know, a couple of times. Once on a trampoline, I almost killed myself. Uh, they pretty well, they, they kind of give up on you a little bit because you, they think you're the next big thing. And so you go through a lot of ups and downs, and uh, there are expectations, of course. But, you know, I think that if you can find just the love and the passion for what you do, you can kind of ignore all that other noise. Uh, you know, uh, yes, I, I understand that. Uh, but uh, I think it's just the passion that I have for the music and just creating what it does. You're in a solitary world. You're in a completely different world altogether. Um, and it's a wonderful place to be. And uh, you bring that world up. And uh, I think, to me, that's important. Uh, to be accepted, to be famous, all that kind of stuff, 
that's nice if it comes to the territory, but that's uh, not a great goal. <laughs> not, not for artists. Being Canadian and going to the Royal Conservatory of Music, was this sort of like the Canadian Juilliard, more or less? Definitely, yes, yes. It was very, very strict, very disciplined, very old school. Uh, big influence from England, obviously, but lots of teachers from Russia and, and uh, uh, all over the world, actually. And uh, so they'd attracted some of the, the best of the best. And, uh, and, yeah, it was very strict. It was very disciplined, high expectations. And I think that's good. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, a school that sets standards that are extremely high makes us want to reach it. So I think that was good. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a really, really a fun experience there. I know that you play Chopin, and my absolute favorite is are his wal- uh, waltzes. And when I was a kid, I loved uh, Christian Zimmerman, the the pole. And now my favorite is Alice Sarah Ott, who's Japanese and uh, a German. Do you play Chopin's waltzes? Yeah, I love I love playing Chopin. I mean, for a pianist, I, I Chopin is nothing like it to play it because uh, mm-hmm. not only does it uh, sound good and you get all the emotional impact of playing it, it just feels good to play it. And just on you know the instrument, your, how your body moves and all the things you do. It's just uh, it's a it's a if you watch a pianist play or any instrumentalist play, if you do if you take the audio off, you're seeing somebody that's just an athlete, just moving around, dancing. Uh, it's, a, it's like a ballet. Uh, we get distracted by the sound, but if you watch it without sound, you go, wow, look at the way the body moves and the shoulders and the legs or whatever the violinist is doing. That's such a physical thing. And some of these things feel great. To The dance feels great. Some of it can be very, you know, pedantic and kind of like very, I don't know, uh, controlled so to speak. So Chopin is a lot of fun to play. Rachmanian is a challenge. Prokofiev is insane. <laughs> is insane. You really have to be an athlete uh, to play those things. And uh, No doubt. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it, you know, it's uh, a big difference. Uh, you know, and I love rock and I like playing pop. I like all kinds of music and I love performing and all of it. But if you're going to, uh, you know, go to the Olympics uh, with your instrument, uh, you go with these guys. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, it's a lifetime of training uh, to do it. And uh, when you get there, it's just, <laughs> there's nothing like it. There really is. It's just it's beautiful. Nothing like it. Can we? Can I give you a new nickname, the King of the Korg? <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right, there he is. Victor, King of the Korg, Alexev, Classics Unleashed, Beethoven, Vivaldi, and Johann Sebastian Bach. And you can find out more at Victor uh, Alexev, and that's A-L-E-X-E-E-F-F dot net. Victor, congratulations, and uh, thanks for coming by. Thanks. Thanks. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. All right. N- no doubt. Uh, and um, I remember when I was in high school, I had a friend who was a keyboardist, and he, uh, but we didn't call them electrical keyboards. They were called synthesizers. And he had a Korg K-O-R-G, and it was super, it was like over $1,000. But he'd get out there on his Korg, and we all thought that was kick-ass. We're like, uh, he's got the Korg working. All right, we'll hear a little bit more of the music here, and then when we come back, we'll be joined by author Brendan Slocum.
You're listening to the Rick Tittle Podcast on the 8 Side Network. Stay tuned for more. It's our pleasure to welcome to the show brand new author, Brendan Slocum. And I say that because he has a debut novel, which is out today, called The Violin Conspiracy, hardback available from Anchor Books. And this book is already taking the literary world by storm. Brendan, welcome to the show. Um, does that make people who have toiled for 40 years and they can't write a comic book mad that you walk right in and you just start killing it with your debut? <laughs> well, thanks, Rick. I appreciate you having <laughs> me. Um, I hope not. Um, <laughs> let's go with no. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's talk about uh, the plot. It says, a riveting tale about a black classical musician whose family heirloom violin is stolen on the eve of the most prestigious classical music competition in the world. Um, I know that you personally uh, play the violin and the viola. You've been teaching it a long time. So uh, how much of this was in your head and how much of this is kind of you? The main character in the story, Ray, is 92% Brendan. Hmm. And um, I have been carrying these stories around with me, um, like his situations and everything, since I was about nine years old when I started playing violin. Um, And it was just really really validating and cathartic to be able to get it out onto a page and have someone look at it and enjoy it. When you were a kid and you would see Isaac Stern or Isak Perlman, and did you think, wait, where's the person of African heritage? I mean, does that something that made you think of it? Because when you look at an orchestra, a lot of white people, several Asians in there, not a lot of people with darker skin. When did it kind of hit you that that was sort of the way it was laid out? I think it really dawned on me when I was in junior high. You know, you you get into you audition and you make these groups, and there's just not a lot of people that look like you. And I discovered early on, wow, I'm seriously a minority in here. There weren't many guys, for starters, and then black guys. I was like the only one, you know, playing violin. So it was. Um, I I learned it pretty early on that it was um, it was a pretty elitist group. And then you get into the stereotypes. Like, you know, oh, the black guy, he's probably better at basketball now. But then you get the opposite classical music. Well, he's probably not as good. So how much did you have to suffer through that? I'm still suffering through it. You're absolutely right. You know, it's like it's it's a constant. um, I'm constantly having to prove myself. Like I I go around and I do um, clinics and and rehearsals and I, I do adjudications and I walk into a room full of kids and they think that I'm one of the custodians or I'm there to move furniture. And then I will ask someone for their fiddle. They reluctantly hand it over to me and I start playing and they're like, whoa, this guy's legit. Okay. You know, so it's it's constantly having to prove yourself. You know, I, I go to play gigs and the directors look at me like, yeah, I'm going to put somebody else on your part because you're probably going to need some help. And I'm like, I played this a million times and you know, okay, do whatever you need to do, dude. But yeah, I got this. So if someone's like, yeah, I don't think you're first string, do you just bust out, like, you know, Vivaldi's Winter Allegro con Molto, like something like that? (laughs) (laughs) Got to do it, winter and summer. I rock summer (laughs) on one of my recitals. Yeah, got to do it, got to do it. Miles hit the floor, but, you know, it's, 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 it's rewarding. Can you bust out a little Devil Went Down to Georgia? Of course. I spent a week in Nashville learning bluegrass. Of course, I can do that and Bill Cheatham and everything in between. It's good stuff. (laughs) 
All right, let's talk about the novel. It's one thing to be an accomplished musician. It's another thing to to write uh, a novel that uh, is gripping. And as you know, you got to grab people really early, or they're going to put the book down. So, how did you uh, how did you aspire to write it, and then how did you uh, learn to do it so well? Well, it was the summer of 2020 when everything was just shut down. You know, I didn't have any gigs. Everything had been canceled. No weddings, no receptions, no concerts, no recitals. Um, And I was sitting on the couch getting fatter and fatter, eating all day long. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and try my hand at writing. I saw an article about selling books in the age of COVID. So I submitted something, got a rejection. This is terrible, but you have a good voice. You should try writing what you know, not science fiction. So um, I started writing, and I have a really, really good agent who um, helped me edit on the fly. And he was like, yeah, okay, this is good stuff. This is a good book. And, um, you know, just, just the situations in the book and the stories, they've been, I've been carrying them around with me for a very long time. And it was, I felt that with the pandemic and with the events that took place with George Floyd, that it was a good time for people to be, um, it was an eye-opening time for people to be aware of these situations and things like this really do happen. And people would be really receptive to uh, receiving stories like this. What did, uh, you know, when you first gave this to uh, a, a pub, I mean, I would imagine that you didn't have some connection into the uh, the publishing world. When you first gave this to someone, did their eyes pop or did it kind of get, you know, backburnered for a while? Yeah, it was it was an eye opening situation. Well, first with, with my agent, it was like, I can't sell a book with the protagonist's name being Raekwon. I can't do that. I was like, you know, this is exactly why you need to do that. It's, it's, it's for that reason that you need to go through with this. And, you know, we fought a lot, and fortunately I won. And some of my editors and, and readers, they were just like, nah, this is too over the top. Things like this don't happen. They can't really happen. And it was a fight. You know, things like this really do happen. And this is exactly the time that stories like this need to be out. And they trusted me, and I think it ended up being a winner. Got more questions for Brendan Slocum, the new, mo- uh, the new movie, the new, like a Freudian slip here, the book, The Violin Conspiracy, but everybody's already talking about how this is, you know, the Queen's Gambit of, of uh, string instruments. Uh, have you already had discussions? As far as a... Uh, as a film, film yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Sony has snagged the rights to this. And just the comparison to the Queen's Gambit is just, I mean, I geek out every time I hear that. It's crazy. Uh, Sony has snagged the rights. And uh, George Tillman, who directed The Hate You Give, is attached to direct uh, the series. And hopefully it's going to be on Netflix or HBO or some something very soon. So does that work where, you know, you say, here are the rights, and then somebody writes a screenplay because it's, of course, different when you got to shoot it and storyboard it and everything? Or do they invite you to the set and they say, are we doing this right or wrong? Or are you just basically turn it on and watch it with the rest of us? <laughs> I am fortunate. I am going to be brought on board as a consultant. You know, one of the stipulations that I, when I was choosing uh, which production company was going to get to the rights to the, the book, I wanted to make sure whomever plays the lead that they know how to play the violin. They got to, you know, be taking lessons. I'm not going to be one of those people that uh, just uh, you, you look and you just cringe. And my friends who are musicians, they would look at me and say, Brendan, what were you thinking? It's like, no, it's not me. It's not me. It's them. So they're they're. I'm really happy that they're uh, giving me a lot of um 
creative space to, you know, just to, to make sure that things are as authentic as possible. Yeah, let's say we've hired Jaden Smith, and you're like, uh, but he can't play the violin. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah you're gonna- <laughs> it's like you know, give me some, give me some, just for men, cover up this gray. I'll go and do the part. <laughs> uh, you want to be Raekwon so bad, don't you? <laughs> Raekwon wants to be me. That's what it is. <laughs> All right, there he is, Brendan Slocum. Uh, I'm telling you right now, uh, this guy he's already working on his next novel. But let's celebrate this one. It just came out today: The Violin Conspiracy from Anchor Books, and then soon to be on the big screen via Sony Pictures. Brendan, congratulations on the book, man, and thanks for stopping by. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. This has been the Rick Tittle Podcast on the 8-Side Network. 8-Side Network. 8-Side.